Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. I'm your producer, Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. In putting together this episode, I found myself asking, what hasn't Rick Hess done? He's an educator, political scientist, advocate, and author of many books, including the recently published Letters to a Young Education Reformer, and that's not to mention his role at the American Enterprise Institute. This conversation ranges from evolution and revolution in school systems to how we can move beyond treating the symptoms of struggling schools to why you usually learn the most from those who you disagree with. But the best part? Rick's reflections on how to handle the astonishing difficulty of working for change and how to avoid overwhelm and burnout for a sustainable career. I'd say that he should write a book on that, but the truth is he already has. Keep listening for more great advice and bear with us through some audio issues on this recording. We thought the content was just too good and so we wanted to share it with you anyway. We're getting to the end of a season one of the Leader Stable podcast, so keep listening to our last few interviews and then tune in for some special edition episodes this summer. As always, we'd love to hear your ideas and your asks for season two, so email us anytime at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Rick Hess at the Leader's Table. Rick Hess, we, welcome to the Leaders Table podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are just a, to get everyone up to speed here. You are both an educator and political scientist, and the author of several books and studies, including the Cage Busting Teacher, uh, Cage Busting Leadership, Breakthrough Leadership in the Digital Age, and say, same thing over and over, along with uh, Education Unbound, Common Sense School Reform, Re- Revolution at the Margins, and Spinning Wheels. Uh, you are the resident scholar and director of Education Policy Studies at AEI, the American Enterprise. Institute. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Hey, no, good to be with you guys. So, Rick, what is the what is the big issue facing American education today? If you were to sum it up into into a sentence or two, you know what we have is we have a system that has emerged as a hodgepodge uh, of compromises and decisions, hmm. and uh, you know, and, and very little of that was designed to try to educate all of our children in the world of the 21st century uh, in a, a way that would equip them intellectually and physically 
to be, you know, successful individuals who could pursue liberty and be responsible citizens, <laughs> you know, in America today. So it sounds to me like when you think about reforming education, uh, restructuring the American education system for the 21st uh, century and and beyond, you're not just talking about reorganizing the way that that kids sit um, in in schools in terms of rows versus clusters. It sounds like there's a much bigger thing or set of uh, set of values that you'd like to see um, at the center of that evolution. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the way to think about this, uh, this is, you know, you mentioned my uh, same thing over and over, which I did for Harvard, gosh, you know, close to a decade ago now. Uh, and the point of that was that so much of the reform, so many of the reforms that excite us at any point in time, uh, you think about the third way urban reforms of the early 1990s, or you think about the curricular reforms of the 60s and 70s, um, I think, you know, if one is able to step back and, and understands the context and the history of the institutions, um, a lot of the stuff that we get very excited about in the moment, uh, you know, is really tinkering with the systems, uh, excuse me, with the symptoms of these larger systems, that, you know, that the fundamental, you, you get these tectonic plates of how schools are organized, how they're governed, uh, how decisions are made, the relationships of families to schools, uh, these are things that we, you know, that we opine about, but don't, but, 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 you know, at the end of the day, we always spend an enormous amount of energy on stuff, uh, you know, which I think is more symptomatic than causal. Hmm. You know, it, when I listen to you, it makes me think that, um, that the American education system as you said, is like a Fortune 500 company that, that needs Chapter 11 reorganization. <laughs> but, but how do you, how do you like, like all organizations facing a massive a need to, for massive change, massive either revolution or evolution, how do you do that in a way that, um, that preserves what is working or at least meets the immediate need and still kind of changes education for the future? And by the way, we haven't even started talking about equity, really. Uh, but what what are the principles there of change? This, this is, I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that a lot of times folks seem to come to education with this notion that, you know, we borrow the language of turnarounds or restructuring, you know, or school improvement. If you go back, you know, we have, we've had different language, you know, different code words for this over the last couple of decades. Uh, the reality is, Turnarounds in the private sector um, are an enormously dicey proposition. The idea that we that anybody really knows how to take a large established organization and make it better um, is just not true. <laughs> uh, this is why you know firms that were once regarded as you know exemplars like TWA and Bethlehem Steel are no longer with us because what happens is you get you know, large existing organizations develop ways of doing things. They develop uh, salary schedules that make sense. They develop cultures that make sense. They acquire assets and routines, and they're built around a certain talent pipeline. And then as the world changes around them, it turns out it's not whether you care, it's not whether you're passionate, it's not whether you're smart. It turns out that, that these institutions that were once hugely advantageous now wind up catching you by the ankles. The way that we deal with this in a lot of the world, where we're not dealing with community institutions that have so much 
uh, meaning to, to, to the communities and families, whether or not the anchors of local communities, is we just understand that there is this natural cycle of life, that organizations emerge, they grow, they thrive, uh, and then they get stuck and new sprouts shoot up and there is this passing of the baton. The trick in education is that we're, for obvious reasons, very uncomfortable with that same dynamic. Um, so the trick is, this is why, by the way, why I've done these case-busting books, because what we're asking of, you know, of dynamic educators, of school and system leaders, is something that's really much harder than what we ask the most private sector kind of entrepreneurial executives, is we're asking them to take decades-old or centuries-old systems in schools um, and fundamentally re-engineer the way they do business. And that's just, that's astonishingly difficult. Um, by the way, this is, so this is, one way we do this is rather than trying to talk about blowing up things, which um, I think rarely works and, you know, is calculated to alienate, you know, most, you know, most families and most communities, uh, is to try to create lots of opportunity uh, for people to kind of start working on fresh sheets of paper alongside. Uh, so this is why, for instance, I think there's such promise in charter schooling. This is why I am a proponent of things like school vouchers, education savings accounts, um, not because these things are solutions for children in and of themselves, but because they are ways to start to make it easier for folks to do that reimagining and creating alongside the existing system. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I often say, Rick, uh, in this podcast and other places, I'm a survivor of the New York City public education system. Um, and I say that with a lot of uh, both pride and, and pain in my heart as well. Uh, there were a lot of us that were good kids in Brooklyn, going to, to tough places, living in tough neighborhoods, going to tough schools with teachers that wanted to do good stuff. And you just... You know, we didn't quite know what it was like outside of that school, but we knew somehow we weren't getting the same stuff that others were getting or that what we were going into on a daily basis was not working. I wonder, though, how do you when you look at the bright spots in the country, are there places that are advancing the advancing school systems thinking about how they continue to serve families who truly are, are reliant on the system, um, but being bold enough to say, yeah, change is needed here. We're going to be entrepreneurial, and we're also going to be invest in, um, in a system that has to serve everyone. Are there, are there a couple of places that you look at for that? You know, I think, there's, I, mean, I think there's a lot of places, honestly, where people are trying to do this. You know, part of the trick is when you think about, like, General Motors prevails over the last couple of decades, you rarely hear people say those darn lazy, evil General Motors factory workers. <laughs> right. um, you hear people who have issues with United Auto Workers and its contract. People attack General Motors men, but like this idea that you know that, that, that or, you know that there's a sense that we understand that people who were like working for GM were victims of being stuck in you know poorly managed factories, which were caught up in destructive contracts. It's so weird for me that, like, so frequently when we talk about some education, um, we tend to vilify these teachers and principals and district leaders um, rather than kind of understanding, 
most of these people are exactly as frustrated um, by the stuff that's grabbing at them as so many of these families are. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, so I think first off, you know, you, you can always do the litany. You know, I, there's the stations of the cross at any given time. Um, folks are, you know, there's Denver and New Orleans and Washington D.C. and uh, you, you, you know, we can, we can keep going off the list, but it, it's it, it's you know, I, I always feel awkward doing that because there's 14,000 districts in this country, and the ones that we name are the ones that we happen to be familiar with, or where we're friends with the superintendent, or you know, where we saw a presentation or somebody talked about it, and we're, they also tend to be the ones that the folks at the major foundations get excited about at a given moment, and so they get a lot of media attention. And then the wheel turns, and then five years later, it's a slightly different set. So, you know, it, it, you know, a, a few years back, New York City was on that cutting edge. A few years before that, it was Houston and San Diego. A few years before that, it was Atlanta. Um, so I, I think one thing is to avoid kind of this, this notion that there's some district or some state chief, you know, who, who's the genius of the moment, uh, and instead to recognize that, you know, frankly, when you delve into, you know, probably three-quarters of the nation's big systems, uh, there's mostly frustrating inertia, and there's some promising stuff going on, um, but the promising stuff keeps getting caught up in these same larger dynamics that we were just chatting about. Hmm. Now, Rick, you're, you are actually a former um, high school social studies teacher, is that right? Uh, yep. So how does your time as a as a teacher influence the policy recommendations and the advocacy that you that you lead today? That's a good question. A, you know, I always tell folks that, you know, I mean, I haven't been in front of a K-12 classroom since the last century. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to claim, uh, you know, that much proximity to, you know, actually, you know, doing classroom work. You know, but what, once a teacher, always a teacher. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think a couple things. I mean, I think, and I don't know if this is, I don't know if it's probably a teacher or not, but, you know, one, I, I just fundamentally believe that the people who matter most um, are people who actually do stuff. This is a unique education. The people who matter most when it comes to building a house are people who actually build houses. Um, but in education today, there's so many advocacy groups and nonprofits and leadership cultivation pipelines and the rest that sometimes, you know, and there's so many awards given to folks for talking that it almost feels like we think talking about uh, teaching and learning is as important as people who actually teach and learn. Um, and I just am fundamentally uncomfortable uh, with, you know, with, with, with this emphasis on talking and advocacy as kind of, you know, just so central and so important in their own right. Um, they're important to the extent that they equip and empower people who do stuff to, to do it better. Um, I think the second thing, though, is just, I, I, you know, I, I, I taught in East Baton Rouge Parish, um, you know, back in the 90s, uh, Louisiana, and, and I was just struck by how many, and before that I you know, I'd substitute taught college for years, and I'd done my student teaching and stuff up in Boston. And in each place, I was just struck that most people in these schools, uh, you know, I, I didn't meet anybody who was, like, opposed to kids learning. Um, I met nice people, 
Um, but mostly, especially in Baton Rouge, I was just struck by the level of Kafkaesque dysfunction. I mean, all of us who've been in these systems have, you know, you can do an hour's worth of stories about just office space kind of ridiculousness, um, except that it doesn't really strike anybody in, in those systems as shocking. It's just, yeah, this is how life is. And, you know, it just, I, I was always struck, and I think my whole career, I've just probably been motivated by this notion that something is fundamentally uh, important and interesting and, 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 and intuitive as the act of teaching and learning uh, has gotten boggled up with, you know, bureaucracy that feels more like, you know, something out of, you know, World War Two era, you, you know, U.S. Army war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as charter schools um, are around longer and kind of enter into their life cycle, don't they face the same sort of uh, sort of challenges and in, in continue to innovate or evolve or, or not become so institutional that that they are stuck in in any any model as well? You betcha. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, Mike Feinberg, uh, one of the co-founders of Kip, you know, has a wonderful line on this about you know the Dane, you know. You know, how do you not? How do you take care not to recreate the beach? Mm-hmm. Um, because, as, and, and the, the reality is, you know, it's funny because I, I'm a guy who's generally uh, supportive of charter schools for exactly the reasons they talked about. Um, but uh, one of the things I point out is, look, um, once you know, when charters are five or ten years old, they're in this new kind of dynamic phase where the culture is still being created. Uh, where people feel like you don't have people who've been doing this for 30 years who are like, this is how we do it. Um, but the longer charters are around, the more they do start to get those things. And the more that happens, the more they start to reflect the same rigidities that drive people crazy um, about other big organizations, nonprofits, for-profits, and school systems. And it doesn't mean these people are bad. It doesn't mean anybody doesn't isn't passionate about serving kids. It's just kind of like, this is how the world works. And so this is one of my concerns when we start talking about, well, we want we want more of the proven models of charter schooling, uh, is that is a surefire recipe that we're going to wake up, you know, in another 10 or 15 years from now, and we're going to realize that we have pretty much, you know, we have pretty much a system that's only populated by charters that are now reaching, you know, where I am in life, kind of stale middle age. Um, rather than having that dynamic population of charters where we're both embracing the charters that emerged and have done well and are growing and maturing and starting to get more rigid, but we are also very consciously keeping the pipelines open so that we get that healthy replenishment. Mm-hmm. When we, I, I want to dig in a little bit with you on the, the issues around equity, um, achieving educational equity, serving all students um, um, to the same high levels, um, closing the achievement gap. What are some of the most important ideas that you've seen in your study of education, uh, educational entrepreneurialism, uh, to achieve some of those goals, to advance some of those goals? So, I mean, it probably depends. I mean, this is where um, I really drive so many of my good friends bananas because I don't think I understand equity quite the way that most of my friends do or that. I think one is supposed to today. Um, 
you know, I'm interested in schools that allow every child to, you know, to give every child the best chance to pursue their gifts. And so for me, equity is if you've got children who come from middle-class backgrounds or affluent backgrounds, um, equity is making sure that they also have opportunities um, to pursue their gifts. Um, and we tend not to talk about those children today uh, in the post, you know, in the NCLB era. Um, by equity, it seems, in my experience, the conversation primarily about low-income children, English language learners, um, and, you know, black and Latino students. Um, and frankly, I, I, I start to get very uncomfortable with the vision of education reform framed that way because I think it, it, it's inherently narrowing, and I think it has the unfortunate effect of telling lots of Americans that school improvement's not about helping their children learn, um, that it's about helping these other children do better, which was never what, never, never what has kind of fired my imagination about the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I, I mean, I, which is weird because I know that's exactly not how most of us think and talk about the issues of equity today. So let me just put that out there. Well, what do you think then when, when you think about policy recommendations, knowing that in the end, uh, no matter what the prevailing language is around equity or where our focus is, in the end, there's a there's a achievement gap that's very real and it falls along race and class. And so we there's something that needs to happen um, to close that gap or to to make the systems function so that every kid has actually access to the same resources and ultimately the same opportunities. What are the things outside of the language, so kind of the, the, the semantics of it, what are the, the, the most important kind of policy pillars when you think about um, meaningfully serving every kid at every level in, in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, I, I think one for me is if we're serious about making sure that uh, kids are treated fairly when it comes to resources, is I'm a huge fan of just backpacking all of this money. Um, if the state of New York is going to spend, on average, you know, 13, you know, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars per child, um, let's make sure that every child uh, is getting, you know, and then if we want to discuss uh, waiting strategies on top of that, or certainly, you know, if you're going to put Title One on top of that, um, you know, I, I think in some ways that's kind of the cleanest and easiest way to start talking about these things uh, because this starts to align the incentives for the school serving these children, uh, for the decision makers. Um, you know, so, so for me, kind of... You know, and frankly, now when you talk about that kind of way to, you know, that kind of backpack funding or way to student funding, there's been a policy discussion about whether those dollars are only to be utilized, you know, only follow those children to the school they would wind up with in the district system, whether those dollars are going to follow them to charters, whether those dollars, you know, will be vouchers that they can utilize in private options, um, you know. I, I, I think a promising approach is, to, you know, is to make that universe of options as expansive as possible. Um, 
but you know, but if the question is what does one do to make scores go up for the you know for for, for black and Latino students so that they score the same as you know white and Asian students? You know, I mean, I think try you know trying to make sure that instructional quality is you know that the schools are delivering instruction that meets kids' needs. Is you know, I mean, I guess that's where I get stuck a little bit because it seems to me that the same things we're talking about—that we try to create great schools that allow folks to uh, deliver learning that you know that helps kids develop their gifts, uh, that schools organize the ways that students are getting uh, you know the, the mentoring and the support and the attention they need, uh, that schools are getting as much instruction that the students are getting the instructional time they need. The schools aren't constrained by calendars uh, or schedules or transportation. Um, that, the, that, that, that these things help all children, and the children who need the most help are the ones who will benefit the most from the ability to deliver these things. Mm-hmm. Rick, if you were to give advice to your 22-year-old self, what would you, what would you advise you? Uh, it's funny, I kind of just wrote a book uh, on this, this uh, book out in the spring, Letters to a Young Education Reformer, hmm. uh, thinking about a lot of these things. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you, you know, one is it's good to be aware of uh, your shortcomings. Um, my shortcomings, I think, are a little different from those of a lot of my friends in our space. Um, that a lot of my friends, I think, uh, one of their, you know, they are, they are so passionate about what they do uh, that it can wind up blinding them in certain ways. <laughs> one of my tricks, uh, one of my challenges is that I sometimes, uh, I think, am more rational than passionate in a space where people expect something else. Um, and it's important to try to, and that sounds like a good thing. I mean, I could sound like you're like humble bragging. I don't really mean it that way. I mean, <laughs> when people are talking about these things because it touches, you know, because it touches children's souls, because it's about community, showing up and wanting to talk analytically about, like, why decisions were made in 1910, uh, it's, not like, it's not humble bragging. It's just kind of stupid and out of touch. Um, but at the time, you know, you, you know, especially when you're 22, you're kind of, you know, you're seeing the world the way you're seeing it, and you haven't had a lot of experiences kind of engaging with adults and seeing with people who've dealt with real heartbreak um, and meeting, you know, and, and you, you just haven't lived in some of the stuff that one lives in two decades later. Uh, and so it's important to kind of try to always, you know, check your assumptions and your understanding of what you think people's motives are and your certainties about how the world works or why people do things. Uh, and instead, try to make it a point to, you know, ask more and listen more uh, than, you know, maybe at least my 22-year-old brain was hardwired for. Mm-hmm. How do you do that today? How do you, uh, how do you te- check and test your assumptions and, and make sure that you're asking and listening more than you're talking? Um, a, I probably don't do it nearly as well as I'd like to. Uh, like most of us, uh, 
you know, but, you know, for me, this is partly like how I pick projects. You know, I did like a case-busting leadership book because one of the things that had become clear to me over the years as I was interacting with superintendents and state chiefs and teaching, you know, teaching folks about be leaders in universities um, was because I was asking and listening, I heard, I heard them be much more interesting in conversation than they allowed them, than they seemed to allow themselves to be when they were actually making decisions. Mm. And so noting that disjuncture, I'd kind of say, hey, why are you not doing this? And then I would shut up. And what came through was a sense that, there, that they, they had internalized all manner of constraints and limitations. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's talking to different people, it's what, especially talking to people who do the work in different roles, uh, sitting down and letting them tell you their stories and not interrupting and not trying to, you know, immediately superimpose kind of my worldview or <laughs> kind of my agenda on what they're telling me. Uh, you know, and so, in case, of course, cage-busting leadership, I wound up getting to have that those versions of those conversations with, I don't know, a couple hundred people. And it's easier, obviously, when you're writing books than when you're doing your job day-to-day sometimes to sit down and listen and let people talk to you. And then with cage-busting teacher, we did it again with probably another 300 give or take teachers. Um, but when you're in meetings, uh there's this tendency to want to kind of speak your two cents when you're out talking to folks in the community there's a sense that if they don't agree that, that, that they just don't quite understand it yet um, you know I think just that you know the biggest thing is to kind of understand that you learn more usually from people who disagree with you or who use different words than you uh, or who live in a different space than you, um, you, you usually learn more from those folks than from anybody else in my experience. Mm-hmm. Rick, I'm curious about, you know, I, I really appreciate that you teach leadership and that you teach leaders. What do you think are the, the two or three things that go into being a successful school leader, since you've seen so many of them? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's, I think there's a couple that are kind of no-brainers um, that I don't have anything interesting to say on. There's, you know, I think emotional intelligence is critical just because of the nature of the work. <laughs> this is children and people who spend all day with children. Um, so I, I think there's that. And, you know, frankly, I think to the extent that one is uh, gifted with, uh, you know, charisma you know, that that's a help. But I think the couple that folks can really work on that I think matter a ton, um, one is just a, a very conscious cultivation of disciplined empathy. Um, and empathy in the sense of not sitting down and let teachers vent to you. Because I think that, that just gets principals or, you know, school leaders exhausted. And it doesn't, doesn't serve any purpose. So I think disciplined empathy in the sense of being able to say to say to yourself, you know, if a teacher runs up to me in the hallway and grabs my sleeve, I'm just going to say, hey, not now. Why don't you come by my office? Um, why don't you talk to me what you want to talk to me about? But also disciplined empathy in the sense that I don't want to hear you vent. Um, I want to hear what's not working for our kids. 
and I want to hear you generate at least one suggestion about how we do better um, so that the empathy gets channeled into really inviting um, faculty and members of the school community uh, into problem solving for all the kids. Um, I think a second thing that they do uh, is having a strategic vision. And, you know, a lot of times uh, when we talk about strategy, like in school improvement grants or something, it's can I write a 20-page document with a bunch of buzzwords? And that's not really what I have. That's not at all what I have in mind. What I have in mind uh, is the ability to understand enough about school spending, about technology, about staffing, um, uh, 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 about, uh, you know, uh, IDEA uh, requirements and how HR works, uh, that you can ask interesting questions so that when those teachers come to you and say, hey, we don't have enough time to actually do hands-on science because of the way we're doing literacy block, uh, if the principal doesn't just say, well, suck it up, and doesn't just say, man, I hear you, but is actually able to kind of translate that into interesting questions about how do we rethink our school schedule? Are there ways to kind of alter our busing routines? How much flex do I have around controlling bell schedule? Uh, and then I think the third thing, uh, frankly, um, is the ability to be effective in the community and less effective in the community as a talking head who's really good at being on message. Um, but again, more somebody who's able to build bridges between the school community and, the, and, and, and families and the, and, and the local community. Um, and again, that's as much being able to listen to what parents, members of the community are frustrated about without telling them they're wrong and actually trying to hear them and understand what they're saying and then work the problem solve. And, you know, that can feel like a lot to dump on a principal's plate, but I think, uh, you know, I think Karen Mapp at Harvard probably as much as anybody has made the case that this stuff can really help pay off um, in terms of making a school a much more powerful place of learning. So, Rick, you um, advocate, you study, you sit on boards, you teach, and you write books. I, by the way, deeply respect people that write books. I think it's um, <laughs> I think it's a really key element of creation, uh, example of creation. How do you keep it all together? What are the what are the couple of things that are are absolutely true for you today about how you organize your time and you stay on top of it all? Uh, you know, the first thing is you know the reason I say I so much respect people who actually do things is partly because. It is much easier to write about and talk about stuff when you do it. So, uh, you, you know, that, that, that always helps. Um, you know, I, mean, I think one is, you know, it, 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 there's different things that kind of frustrate, I think, us in different worlds. For me, one is that there's always so, met, so much going on in education um, that one can get frustrated by, excited about. You know, when you're a writer, you want to write about this and that and that. And that's just a recipe for writing really predictable, unhelpful, adds no value stuff on everything. Um, so one is just trying to tell myself that it's a big world, that there's 350 million people in this country, that there's lots and lots of people writing and thinking about these issues, most of them smarter than me, and there's absolutely no need for me to weigh in on everything that's going on. 
Mm. Um, I actually try to speak to things where I actually might have, you know, or, or at least a chance I'm going to offer some of the safe stuff in a way. I'm going to offer insights that will actually hopefully be helpful. That's that sound. That sounds to me like valuable insight for up-and-coming advocates, right? That To know that you know you don't have to opine on everything, but that you need in some way to be making strategic choices. That's exactly. And in fact, it's also not, not only for advocates, but also, um, you know, there's a sense so many people. Again, one, one of my problems is less, I'm not as burdened by this sense of, my, my, you know, I'm doing this work to fix America. So many of my friends uh, seem to have in their DNA. Um, but I think, you know, and I think that can become overwhelming. It can lead so many people who are in our space just to burn out because there's 50 million children to help and there's so much, so many points of concern and there's so many frustrations that it can just get overwhelming. And I think it's just really important for people to understand that, you know what, if you wake up each day, uh, you know, you work hard to do what you do well, you work hard to, you, you try to do something that you think is going to make a real positive difference in people's lives. Uh, you, you know, you make an effort to be kind and respectful to those around you. Um, you know what? I, I, I honestly think, you know, that, pe- that the people who have done that should feel perfectly fine putting their head down at night, even if they've only made their lives better for one child or ten children. Um, that otherwise, you know, so that's, that, that's, that, that, so that's one way that I keep it all together. Um, a second way is that, you know, it's, this is stuff that's important. I mean, this is about people's futures. It's about things we believe in. It's about our deepest values. It's very easy uh, to take it personally and to make it personal. Uh, when you see somebody saying something that I just disagree with, that I think is not just goofy but destructive, it's very easy to, you, you know, decide that, therefore, that person is terrible and destructive. Um, and I just wor- have always worked really hard, again, this kind of disciplined empathy, to understand that, you know, it's a big world. When you actually have had a chance to sit down with the people who do what we do, uh, when you actually let them talk through how they're thinking about it, what motivates them, I have found, I think literally in every case, um, that I think they're decent people. It doesn't mean I think they're doesn't mean I don't totally disagree with them. Doesn't mean that I don't think they're out to lunch. But I think they are decent people who are trying to do what they think right and deserve my respect. And I find it a whole lot easier um, to maintain my mental equilibrium when I think about working in a space filled with people like that. Mm-hmm. And what does uh, what do the first two days, two uh, hours of your day look like? You wake up. And walk me through the the time between getting out of bed and uh, and around 10, 10 a.m. Yeah, well, right now we got a, a two and a half year old and a one month old. Did you sleep at all? <laughs> so not, 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 yeah, exactly. You know, it's a whole lot of uh, you know trying to keep the two and a half year old uh, from tearing the house apart, kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but, you know, but, but, but the first two hours kind of uh, I'm, I'm into stuff, uh, what I try to do is, one, um, I, I try to usually write with that time. Um, usually write short-form stuff, like my blog or something, because it's just, you know, when you wake up, there's just, 
you know, you've been thinking about stuff, something settled, uh, it's a good time to try to sit down and put pen to paper and write six or 800 words. Uh, and the other thing I like to do at that time uh, is, you know, read stuff that's not about education. Um, you know, it's very easy, especially nowadays, uh, just the sheer amount of stuff that comes through our inboxes or the sheer number of things that we want to check up online, uh, that you wind up and you can't see the forest because there's six trillion trees you're trying to keep up with. Uh, so, you know, I like... You know, I like to read, you know, the newspaper, but, you know, also read fiction or read history or read stuff from other sectors or, um, you know, just trying to make sure that as I'm thinking about this stuff, I'm trying to make sure I'm grounded in a vision of the world that's less narrow than which study, you know, which NDER study um, got the most attention in Ed Week, uh, you know, this morning. Um, and that's obviously easier for me because I don't have to do my job is a little different from so many people in the space, but for me, it's a helpful discipline. And if you were to, um, if you were to choose your ideal day, how would you spend the, about 50% of it? Uh, hanging out on the, uh, Malapitas beach in Eos and the Greek islands. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Mediterranean all the way. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I've always, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a firm believer in trying to, you know, set this stuff down and go yeah. spend time and read and talk with friends and like not not allow this, you know, not allow this stuff to be all consuming because frankly. Um, you know, I think you get it's very easy to get to one of this stuff where you're just kind of grinding metal and metal. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if we, you know, if what we were doing was a, a, you know, was working so, you know, terrifically well that it was all about execution, then that kind of grinding metal and metal, you can make a case for it. But I think a lot of what we need to do is rethink. Uh, rethink what we're doing, rethink how we're trying to do it, rethink kind of the coalitions that are doing it, rethink the way we um, engage with each other around these questions. And, uh, you know, I think that really benefits from, um, you know, some mental and emotional distance. Absolutely. With that, Rick Hess, thank you so much for joining the Leaders Table. Really appreciate you sharing your uh, your insights, your wisdom, and, uh, and your experience with us. Thank you for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leaders table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. <laughs>